This morning we are continuing our series, uh, The Full Story, where we're working our way through the scriptures, starting in Genesis in the beginning, and hopefully at the end of the year, we make it, I think we will, uh, we'll be in the amen in Revelation. And so we're working our way, chapter by chapter, book by book, and we're finding ourselves reading passages that we typically don't find in, in church services. Like Leviticus, or if you're doing the reading plan right now, we are in the book of Numbers and wondering what is up with all these names and all these numbers and all these genealogies. And, and, and as we read through this, as a church that believes in the authority and power of Scripture, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, is we are leaning into this value and saying, God, we know that you're going to teach us through this. The whole counsel of God. It's been really fun and really challenging. And today we are in the book of Leviticus, our second week in Leviticus. And we're in this section in the story of where the God's people are at Mount Sinai. God has given them the law. They were delivered out of Egypt. They were delivered to God's presence. And God gives them this law. And in Leviticus, we're learning about this guide for what it looks like for the regulations uh, and the commands of God for how God's people can be in the very presence of God as they prepare next week to travel. And start their way to the promised land in the book of Numbers. And so today we're looking at a passage in Leviticus about this command and imperative to the people called Jubilee. Jubilee. What is this Jubilee you speak of? It is so foreign. It is so upside down. As we think about this, I, I would encourage you to try to understand and grasp what is happening here. Is Maybe it would be helpful to think about if, when you were a young child, that last day of school. Do you remember that feeling? Of walking out of class and being like, summer break is here. I am free from the shackles of homework and school and waking up and packing a lunch. I got the summer in front of me. Or, or maybe for some of you uh, having a child, nine months of, of pregnancy and then the child comes and all of a sudden you know, you, you're through the painful labor and you have this child and there's this moment, this incredible sacred moment of jubilee. When everything changes, maybe it's a new job, maybe a, you, know, you, you no, no longer have these responsibilities, whatever it may be, it's this moment of liberty and freedom and jubilee. This word jubilee is actually a Hebrew word that is connected to the actual horn that the people would blow. We were talking about this uh, in our teaching team, and a guy from our teaching team, Eddie Hookstra, Got on Amazon, good old Amazon, and he got me one of these horns. Check this out. I believe it's called a shofar or something like that. And it's like a, it's an actual uh, ram's horn, and some of them would be a lot bigger. And, and for this day of Jubilee, the people would blow this horn. I'd blow it for you, but I don't know how. And Eddie tried it earlier, and literally it was such a bad sound in his office that the dogs went running. And so I'm, I'm going to save you from the pain of that, but you could just envision just this powerful, beautiful proclamation. 
And it seems to me that on this special day in Leviticus 25, there's something happening that is incredibly important in God's economy and in God's place. That God wants his people to embrace something that is totally upside down and radical and uncomfortable and beautiful. It seems here, as we read this text, first thing that the Lord wants his people to do on this special jubilee year is that they are going to proclaim it. They're going to proclaim it. And what are they going to proclaim? Liberty throughout the land. Look at what it says here. Chapter 25, starting in verse, uh, verses 8 through uh, midway through 10. It says, you shall count seven weeks of, of years. Seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seven months, on the day of atonement. Remember last week in Leviticus 16, if you weren't here, go back and watch that if you want to learn about the day of atonement. There was this special day that God's people participated in where they would be cleansed of their sin and they would be reminded of the victory that they have in Christ. And on that day, on this special day, this special year, they were to sound the trumpet throughout all your land and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim, here it is, liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Now, if you continue reading, we don't have time to read the whole chapter of 25, it's going to explain to us what this liberty throughout the land for all the inhabitants meant. But to summarize, this would be in the 50th year. And in these times, what what God is telling his people is actually every seventh year they were to have a Sabbath year. And this was a year when they actually would not harvest their crops. They would give the land a break. And God would bless them abundantly with so many leftovers from the sixth year that they would spend the seventh year in the entire year having this Sabbath year. And then you multiply that by seven. Seven is like God's number of completeness. He created the earth and the world in seven days, and it's just this, this numerology of this, this number that equates to uh, completeness and perfection. So then God says, multiply that seven times seven, and that equals 49 years. So in the 49th year, we're going to have, check this out, a mega Sabbath. Like you thought, like one year of Sabbath? On the Day of Atonement? When we go and we, and we reset the tabernacle and we, and, we, and we kill the goat and we send the other goat off and we go through that process, at the end of that process, you're going to blow this jubilee horn and this is going to be on the 50th year, a year like no other. This was a year of a reset. It was a reset for the people, for one, God is promising his people that he's going to give them land in the promised land. And over the course of these 50 years, maybe some of the different tribes, some of the different people, maybe they made some bad business moves. Maybe they made some poor decisions. Maybe they found themselves in debt and they have to sell their land. 
And in those times, in addition to selling your land, if you got in real debt and then you had no land to sell and you had no wages to, to pay your debts, is there was this setup in those times, uh, a, a, a way for the poor to be able to pay their debts where you could, out of your own volition, volunteer to become a servant or a slave. And in Deuteronomy, we learn that you, you would be a slave for six years, and in the seventh year, you must be set free in the Hebrew covenant community, where you could earn back your money. You could earn back and pay off your debt. And, but then in the 50th year, God is saying in the year of Jubilee, when this happens, something radical happens. And everyone who is a slave, all of the Israelites who have found themselves in these dire straits, all of the families, all the different clans, all the different 12 tribes that have lost their land, everything gets reset and put back to where it was. This is radical truth. Now before we talk any more about what is happening in this reset, I think that there's some tension that is important to deal with, especially here in 2020. I don't know about you, but as I've been reading Exodus, or as we continue to read the Old Testament, this question of slavery seems to keep coming up. Why is this in Scripture? We know from back in Genesis chapter 1 that God created mankind in his image. We know that every single living, breathing human being is created in the, in the image of God and therefore has dignity and value and, and that, that everyone is equal. So what's up with all this slavery? Is, does the Lord, does the character of God sanction slavery in the Bible? Is God okay with this? There definitely seems to be laws that regulate it. There seems to be, and, and you do see God having laws that say, hey, if you mistreat your slave, there's a, a passage in Deuteronomy, or maybe it's Exodus, that says if you, if you uh, abuse your slave and, and you knock out a tooth, you need to let that slave go free. There's laws in place to protect the powerless, to protect those. But there's so much in me that just wishes that as we read this, God just says, that's not allowed. Because we know. Created in the image of God. So what do we do with this? Well, we could talk about the differences between sla ancient slavery and, you know, our history of slavery in America, the evil of that. We could talk about how this worked here, but it seems to me that as I've been uh, reading through this, what I found to be really helpful in my understanding of what's happening here in Scripture is actually to look at how Jesus our Lord, when he was walking on earth, would deal with issues like this. And Jesus doesn't speak against slavery, but he does speak against another um, issue in Scripture that I think relates to this. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees, these were the religious leaders at the time, were really, really smart. They come up to Jesus, and they're, and they're asking him about uh, if it's lawful for divorce. Is it ever okay to be divorced? And they're setting Jesus up because they know that in Exodus, 
There's a law about giving a certificate of divorce. And Jesus answers, he says, have you not read that he, God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, this is in verse 4, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When they're asking him about this principle, Jesus goes back to the garden before sin. and says, this is how God designed men and women to be in relationship. And then in verse 7, it says that these Pharisees, they say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They think, oh, we have a trap here. Why, in the, why, why does God have this, these regulations? And then Jesus says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and, and marries another, commits adultery. He talks about this tension, and it goes back to the garden. And it seems to me that this hermeneutic is the same kind of hermeneutic that we use when we speak about slavery. That we recognize that out of, sla- out of our own sin, we are fallen, we are powerless, we make mistakes, we, we, we find ourselves in places that we never did, and God doesn't o- approve of this, but he regulates it. Does that make sense? He regulates it. I found a, a helpful quote, it's a little long, but it's by this guy named Esau McCauley. He, uh, he wrote a book called Reading While Black. He writes about what it's like to read scripture and the history and heritage of those who have a, a heritage of, of being slaves and the, the, the struggle of that, but also the beauty of what he found in Scripture. And I found this reading for him to be really helpful in this area. He said, reading and interpreting these passages as a descendant of slaves remains painful. Maybe the healing of these wounds is eschatological. Eschatological is a fancy word to say when Jesus returns and makes everything right. Nonetheless, while we wish that some Old Testament texts would go further, it is, it is in, to my mind clear that God's very character and the central story of the Old Testament speaks against slavery. Slavery is a manifestation of the fall. And God begins the story of Israel by freeing them from slavery as a symbol of hope. This is the story of Exodus. My ancestors read it that way, and so do I. The Old Testament laws recognize the humanity and dignity of the enslaved person in ways that far outstrips Israel's contemporaries. What we read of in Scripture was countercultural, was completely against what all the other societies were doing at the time in the ancient world. It also provides various avenues for freedom. It is not everything, but it is enough because I follow the trajectory of these texts towards liberation. So as we read about this and deal with that tension, we can see here, even in these Old Testament laws, this is God regulating from the sin of mankind. And it's pointing us towards this Hope of one to come of jubilee. And so we see in this text that the people are called to proclaim it, but I want you to hear this. 
They're not just called to blow the trumpet and to say, this is the year of Jubilee. They're also called to claim it. It shall be Jubilee to you. Here's what I mean. Look at what it says here, starting in verse, picking it back up in verse 10. And as you read this, I want you to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Typically when we read a passage like this, I put myself in the shoes of the, of the, of the young man or the, who made some bad decisions or ended up having to sell himself in slavery. Maybe he lost his family's land, maybe whatever it may be, and, he as, and this day of Jubilee is truly a day of Jubilee of being reset. But I would like you to read this from another point of view. Read this thinking about the Israelite who's successful. The Israelite who's a part of God's covenant community, and he actually is wealthy. And he actually has gotten extra land from other people because of great decisions and God's blessing. And he's reading the year of Jubilee, and probably, if we're being honest, doesn't feel a lot of Jubilee about this concept of giving the land back away. Yet there's something, as we read Jubilee, let's not read it individualistically, let's read it as a community, as a people, a covenant family. And look at what it says here. Remember, he's talking to the whole covenant, the rich and the poor. It says, it shall be Jubilee for you. This is a statement. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan, This 50th year shall be jubilee for you. He says it again. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows in itself nor gather rapes for the undressed vines. For it, he says it a third time, for it is a jubilee to you. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. So as you proclaim it, as you claim it, you enjoy it. You eat of it. And there's this Sabbath idea of resting in it. And this idea of resting in it, Sabbath is not just about taking a day off. You see, Sabbath is always about in the rhythms of your life being in the very presence, resting in God himself and trusting in him. And to have a Sabbath year or a mega Sabbath year, the people are, are, are being put back in a space to say, we are going to trust that God is king. That all these commands that we've learned about, that this guide that he's given us, even though we work really hard, even though we labor, there's also this posture of resting in his graciousness and in his providence and in his protection. This is why at the, uh, later on in 25 verse 23, as God is speaking into this, I think he's also having the, the, the rich and the wealthy in mind. Look at what he says. He says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. I, I, I can't say this word. Someone help me. How do you say perpetuity? Okay, thank you. Ongoing. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you, people, are strangers and sojourners with me. Now God is making a theological point to his people. 
think, this is mine. Your possessions, your land, that's as my people, and you as submitted to me, what is yours is actually mine. So hold it loosely. Be ready to give it away. This is radical. This is so radical. This is so countercultural, so that goes against, especially in our Western individualistic society that says, work really hard, have that American dream, and get, and you, know, you can do it. Put your, whatever you put your mind to, you can do it. And this says something very different. And as we think about this, we ask ourselves, how does this story in Leviticus 25, this ancient story in an ancient culture, in an ancient society that is very different than our day and age, how does this story, how does my story relate to this story? Does this mean that we should start counting years? And on the 50th year, we all give up our stuff back and reset every year for one. That doesn't make any sense because how do we know who originally had it? And how do we? That, that, that's not what we should do. This is not permission or guidance to say that we should live in a similar society. That's very different. The question is what does this mean for us in God's covenant family? As we read the Old Testament, this is something that we have to do. There's this word in theology class they talk about. It's called hermeneutics. It's, this, it's called interpretation of Scripture. It's where we read Scripture, and we need to, as God's people, understand what the eternal principles are, especially in the Old Testament, to say what was for that time in, the, in that setting, but what are the eternal principles that we learn about God, that we learn about his people that apply to us today? What are those principles and the first principle for us as we think about as on this side of the cross, if you are a believer, you are a part of God's covenant family, is that in God's covenant family, we care for the poor and the powerless. As we read the narrative of scripture, you're gonna see time and time again that God commands his people, care for the poor and powerless. You're gonna see time and time again that God tells his people, care for the orphan and the widow. Feed the hungry. You're gonna see God's people time and time again forget these truths. And you're gonna find it when we get into Micah, this famous passage where, where it says, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? What, are you, what is your commands? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Justice and mercy, but doing it with God. And we can see this playing out in Scripture. You can turn with me to James chapter 2. James deals with this in the church. He applies these principles of caring for the poor in James chapter 2. And actually, especially thinking about this idea of this hierarchy, the poor and the wealthy, and, and how we tend to have these tendencies 
to look at people differently based on their status or based on their success. And James writes to the church, and I think this can speak in to some of these principles that we think about how they apply to us. He says, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? He says, but you, he's talking to the church, in particular, he's talking about the gathering of the church and the life of the church. He says, but you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, what's the royal law? Love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. You're in the reading plan, you remember from Leviticus 19, that's where this, this idea first picks up. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Seems to me there are some important principles here for us as God's people to reorient, say yes, we are a people that care about the poor. It seems to me that this is why when you start looking and you do some research about orphanages in the world, about orphan care and widow care and feeding the hungry, nine times out of 10, those nonprofits, those Movements are Christian because they're sourced in the ways of God. The Heidelberg Catechism, one of the catechisms that we helps us with this, talks about this. It's actually, I think, really interesting. If you have a Heidelberg Catechism, I'd encourage you to go and, and read this. This is one of the teaching tools that we use in the Reformed faith. And one of the questions is actually about the Eighth Commandment. You know that famous or commandment that says, Thou shalt not steal. Look at what it says. It says, what does God require of you in this commandment? It says, that I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good. That I treat others as I would like them to treat me and that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. It's important that we just pause and recognize this law, this commandment. We care for the poor and powerless. But church, it's also incredibly important that we don't miss, as we think about caring for the poor and powerless, this truth. Hear this. We are the poor and powerless. We are the poor and powerless. Far too often, even that song that we sing, all the poor and powerless, I find myself singing that for other people. I find myself thinking, oh yeah, the thieves. Oh yeah, those poor people. Oh yeah, those powerless people that are stuck in jail. Or, and I don't understand that that's a song that the church is called to sing together and identify with. Because we are the poor and powerless. And as we think about God's commands to us to care for the poor and powerless, we recognize we don't do a very good job at that. What's interesting about this 
As you think about the year of Jubilee, do you know that there's no record in Scripture, no record in the history books that this actually happened? It was commanded. We know that in the guide, God's people are called to, to, to practice this mega Sabbath. But it seems to be that 50 years from the writing of this, when this was supposed to happen, it didn't. And I think I can understand that. Kind of one of those deals where it's like, yeah, you know what? We had this awesome idea, and then we got to the point of actually living it out, and we were like, yeah, that's not going to work. Like, I, I understand that, but yeah, I, I can't give my land to Harry. I can't give my land to Jacob. He didn't deserve that. You know who that is? He's just going to squander it again. And God's people struggle with truly trusting in his providence and trusting in his ways because of our own pride and our own narcissism and our own sin. This is why in Psalm 14, verse 2, one of the psalms that we've read this last couple weeks says this. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand any who seek God, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. You go on to Romans 3, and Paul really hashes this out. All have sinned and fallen short. It seems to me that this is incredibly important as we think about how we care for the poor and powerless. We feel the tension and we understand I am the poor and powerless. And this tension we're going to see throughout the rest of this story. And as we read through this, there's a longing for us that says, when will this liberation, when will this jubilee come? As a matter of fact, there was a prophet by the, by the name of Isaiah who wrote about this. He wrote of how the anointed one would come, someday this promised one would come and bring about the year of the Lord's favor, the same language of the year of Jubilee. Look at what Isaiah said. He said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. He is speaking about a Messiah. It's because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to what? The poor. He has sent me to bind up the what? The brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness to the prisoners, the poor and the powerless, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Comfort all who mourn. Read this, and we long for this day, and we think, man, I wish the Lord would bring this year of Jubilee. I wish it would come. Now check this out. Luke chapter four, verse 18. It tells us that Jesus is in Nazareth, and he goes into the synagogue. In the synagogue, they have a practice of reading the ancient scrolls. And Jesus of Nazareth walks in 
And he opens up a scroll. And guess what scroll it happens to be? Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus unrolls the scroll, and look at what happens. If you've got your Bibles, I would just encourage you, read this for yourself with me. Luke chapter 4, verse 19. Check this out. It says, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And in verse 18, sorry, it says this. Jesus says this. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim what? Good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it tells us that he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Everyone's wondering, did he really just do that? What is he saying? Are you serious? And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, hear this poor and powerless brother and sister. Jesus is our jubilee. Jesus is the year of Jubilee. And as we read about this and think about this, we know that we live in the year of Jubilee. What's interesting is the prophecy that Jesus reads, if you remember in Isaiah 61, it doesn't end with the year of the Lord's favor. It also says that there would be a day of vengeance. But what's so interesting is Jesus says he has come to fulfill that Yet, the day of vengeance has not come yet because he's still going to return. And so we are in between these two days. We are in the already not yet of the kingdom of God. We are a people who live in the year of Jubilee, a year, a time of liberty and, and, and freedom for the poor and the powerless. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. seems to me that the more that we understand this, the more that our paradigm changes. Because as I think about caring for the poor and powerless, as I identify and recognize that I am the poor and powerless, all of a sudden the playing field is the same and we all find ourselves at the foot of the cross. And there's no race, there's no Wealth, there's no position or status that separates us. We are all united together in the truth of Jubilee. And this is what changes us and does something in our hearts. Tim Keller says, ministering to the poor is a crucial sign that we actually believe the gospel. Far too often, we get things mixed up. I think I do these things, I care for the poor so that I get these things. But the truth is, as we live in Jubilee, is Jubilee causes us to care for the poor. The gospel causes us naturally out of response to live in this beautiful Jubilee. 
And so the question I have for you is, what do you do with Jubilee? What do we do with Leviticus 25? What do we do with that today, on this day, on this Super Bowl Sunday? It's the same as what we read in Leviticus 25. Hear this, proclaim it and claim it. Friends and sisters, brothers and sisters, we need to be a people that step into dark places with trumpets. Now that doesn't mean that you go buy a trumpet and you go step into actual dark places. That's a metaphor to saying that you hold these truths so share them with the world. So live out Romans 1.16 that says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone, the Jew and the Gentile. It's for everyone. So believe that, proclaim that. How do you do that? Pastor Logan, I understand that, but I don't know how to do that. Here's the greatest way you can proclaim the gospel. Share your story. In our community group, we do this. Every week when we share on Monday nights, a couple people from our church, they just share what God has done in their lives. They talk about how whether they grew up in the church and they, and they grew up in the family of God and slowly started to develop an understanding and a knowledge of who God was as a part of his covenant family and came to faith in him. Or for some of us, we wandered off or we were far from God and God grabbed us and drew us back in. And as we share it, we see the beautiful power of the gospel that the gospel of Jesus changes lives. And so share your story. That is the power. And don't tell me you don't have a story. We all have a story. And we gotta share that story. And we proclaim that all over the place. But hear this. We don't just proclaim it, we claim it. Sometimes, I get this, I do this every Sunday, I I preach the gospel my favorite thing in the world to do. But I'll be honest. Sometimes I need to put myself out here and preach it to myself. You can get so caught up that I don't think about my own position as poor and powerless and saved and resting in that Sabbath grace. Believing in that to be true for me and for you. So I just encourage you this morning Whatever God is speaking into you, no matter what you've done, know that these truths are true for you and that God invites you into his jubilee right now. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, I'm just so thankful. I, I love how we can find you, Jesus, in Leviticus all of this is a shadow of you, the shadow caster. I pray, God, that we would be a people that continue to lean in and learn about what it means to proclaim and claim these truths. God, we wouldn't be just a people that tell the world about it, but we would tell ourselves about it. That we would live in your grace and your mercy and your wonderful beauty. 
that we would live as a people that are free, that we would hold on to our things and our possessions and our, and our success lightly, knowing that ultimately it's all yours, and we would thank you for what you've given us. And so, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to feast together at your table, I pray that you would do a mighty work that we in this time would continue to grow and learn from these truths together. We thank you, we love you, we praise you. In your name we pray, amen.